0: Once again, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2. I want to read from Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 1 and on down to verse 3. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Before we look at some of these words, let us now pray once again for the help of Almighty God. Most blessed and glorious God, we do indeed rejoice in this day of remembrance, a day in which, especially now in the new covenant, we remember not just the old creation, but now the new creation, the creation that was revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ when he rose from the dead. And we do pray even now that you would help us to learn your purpose for us and and drawing aside that we might worship you one day in seven. We pray, Lord, that you would give us joy in seeking your face and in spending time with you. We pray that such time would not be hated and despised and begrudged, but we pray rather that it would be eagerly embraced, and that from our hearts. And we know, O Lord, that it is necessary, therefore, not only that you teach our brains, but that you touch our hearts by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. We pray for his Spirit's, Spirit's help even now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout history, great victories have been celebrated with great jubilation. It's May 8th of 1945 the day when the German troops finally laid down their arms. And all across Europe and all across America, flags are unfurled and massive crowds pour into the streets to rejoice in the defeat of the Nazi war machine. With 75 million people dead, most of them in Europe, at last the European phase of the deadliest conflict in history was over. And in the United Kingdom and I especially comment on this because it was this country remember that was bombed day and night by the by the Luthoaf. in the United Kingdom more than a million people poured out into the streets and a massive crowd gathers in Trafalgar Square in front of the Buckingham Palace in a little while and after going from the palace to Whitehall Prime Minister Churchill he addresses the crowd God bless you all he shouts this is your victory. In our long history, we have never seen a better day than this. But then at this point, he asked Ernest Bevan to come forward and to say a few words to the massive crowd. So Bevin cries out, No, Winston, this is your day. And he proceeds to conduct the crowd in singing, for he's a jolly good fellow. And similar celebrations took place in the United States, most notably in New York's Times Square. So many times throughout history, great victories have been celebrated with great jubilation. Some celebrations, however, are a response to some great achievement. It's July 16th of 1969. It's 10 o'clock, 10.56 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Apollo 11 has just landed on the moon, and with more than a half billion people around the world watching on television... Neil Armstrong climbs down the ladder and he says that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And so immediately the command center at Houston erupts in jubilation and in living rooms all around the nation people jump out of their seats at the wonderful achievement that had taken place. Long ago there was an event that vastly outstrips both of the events that I just described. It was the creation of the universe, the creation of the earth and its inhabitants, especially the creation of man and woman. The celebration of God's creative masterpiece, this is recorded in the verses that I read to you a moment ago. And this celebration is obscured by the chapter division that we have in our English Bible between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because I think the opening of chapter 2, which should have been included at the end of chapter 1. Because it really is the climax of the whole creation week. And here is a place in which Stephanus, the 16th century printer scholar that introduced the chapter and verse divisions. Here's a place where he just plain blew it. The story is that, and this is probably a little bit apocryphal. But the story is that Stephanus he made these chapter and verse divisions while he was riding a horse. And every time he hit a bump, that would be in the next division. And so accidentally it happened this way, and that's why we have it as we read it in this, uh, our English Bible. So whatever truth there is in the story, no doubt it has been embellished. But Stephanus aside, when we read chapter 1 and verse 31, the end of that chapter, and then read into the next chapter, The verses together express the satisfaction and delight that God had at the conclusion of day six. And so we read in 131, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. The first three days of forming the creation... And the concluding three days of filling that creation, then capped off by the creation of man, left creation, you see, lacking nothing. Everything that God made was perfectly just as he intended it to be. All that God made was worthy of praise. And this is why he gives it the highest commendation now throughout this whole account. It was very good, not just it was good, but very good. The earth is spinning perfectly in its 24-hour rotation. It began to make its majestic circuit around the sun. The well-ordered planet, it swarms with fish in the sea, with birds in the sky, and all with life teeming all over the continents, all under the inspective eye of the first couple. This is the setting of the celebration that took place of creation long ago. And the celebration, of course, that we are speaking about was the first Sabbath. Now what we have in verse 1 is indicated in the first main heading in the outlines printed in your bulletins. And we covered points 1 and 2 in our last sermon a couple weeks ago. And the first of these headings is the glorious backdrop which sets forth the glory of the Sabbath. It's not true to say that the creation week came to the climax at the creation of man or woman. The structure of the first week, it leads to the seventh day. That is the climax to the whole tale. All that God had designed and all that God had willed did to put into his masterpiece painting, as it were, it's now in its place. It's finished, perfectly finished. And so the divine artist, he surveys the whole canvas of his work And he could see nothing that needs to be added, nothing that needs to be changed. The work is so marvelous that when it's finished, it needs to be celebrated. And therefore, the first day after the work was done was a day of celebration and of worship. And then we noted in our last study, in the second place, the divine example which sets forth the essence of the Sabbath. We read that example in verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So how is it that God sets this ordinance of the Sabbath before Adam and Eve? How does he get them to do what he wants them to do? Did he give them some kind of a command? Well, we don't read a command in this particular place. What we see here is an example and it's not delivered to Adam, you see, by a cold edict, but rather it's given in a way that would fire Adam's heart. Adam loved God with all his heart, with all his soul. He was created in God in his father's image. And the, the, the most warm, the most persuasive way to get Adam to join in with the, the creator and the celebration would be to be as an example before Adam. And so this is what God did. Having finished the work in six days, he rested, or literally he Sabbathed on the seventh day. And the word translated Sabbath or rested, it means to cease or desist. And therefore the essence of the Sabbath is to cease or desist from ordinary endeavors. And with respect to God, this included three elements. It included cessation from God's creative work. It was not just an idle place, idleness, because God, he still works, as Jesus says. He still maintains the earth. But it's a change of occupations. And so it is with us. And we also saw, secondly, that this rest was of spiritual refreshment. In Exodus 31, Moses gives this reason for keeping the Sabbath. In six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. And this is, of course, not because God was tired, he needed to have a break. It was because God was, as the the great painter, as the great sculptor of the universe, he was delighted in what he saw, and he took it all in, and his soul, as it were, God doesn't have a soul, but as it were, he was refreshed, he was satisfied, with. he, he was ravished with refreshing delight. And so even so, this day is meant to be a day of refreshment and joy for you and me we also saw that this rest was that of entering into God's resting place. In Exodus chapter 20, we read this reason given for the fourth commandment for his six days. The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And the Hebrew word for rested in that passage is different than the one in, in Genesis chapter 2. Instead of depicting the absence of movement, that's the idea of Genesis chapter 2, the word there, it depicts settling down in a particular place. And so we read in Psalm 132, this word is used there, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now people say, well, every day is, is a delight. People also say, well, every place is, is uh, a place where we can worship God. We don't need to have meetings with God's people. And yet Jesus has promised a special presence in a certain place. And that place is where God's people gather to worship. And just as there is a special presence in, in places, there's also a special presence in certain times when God has promised that he would draw near to us and he would feed us from his word and bless us with his Presence. So the essence of the day is that of rest, and this threefold rest is set forth by way of divine example. Now, notice with me, we come now in the third place, and this is going to be our main consideration this morning the divine activities which define the essential character of the Sabbath. What are those activities? What did God do on that day? Verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now these divine activities set the Sabbath day apart from every other day of the week. And even the way that it's all related to us here in this passage is, is different. There's something different about this day. There's no creation formula here. And all the other six days we read something like this. And God said, and then what happened is the fish hole came into existence after God spoke. And then then the next time, the next event, and God said this. We, We have those kind of formulas throughout the six days. But we don't have that here. And furthermore, the seventh day doesn't have the closing refrain. And there was evening and there was morning to indicate the end of that day. And also, unlike the six creative days, the number of the seventh day was repeated three times. Three times in these three verses, it's spoken of as being the seventh day. And also, the seventh day is the only day that God blessed. It's the only day that God made holy. Now, clearly, you see, God is focusing our attention upon uh, this special character of this day. And indeed, it's what the Puritans called it, the queen of days, and by this expression, they were repeating what the apostolic father, Ignatius, wrote. And by the way, the apostolic fathers were, the, were those that were alive when the apostles were still alive. That's how early they were. And Ignatius says this, Let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's day as a festival, the resurrection day, the queen and chief of all days. Its special character, this day, as this verse tells us, It's set before us by way of two actions that are mentioned in this verse. And with reference to these two activities, I want to point out two things. We want to look at their identity, and then we want to look at their rationale. But first of all, their identity. What are these two actions? In verse 3a, there are two verbs. God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. And in the Hebrew, both of them are in the PL form. And that's a very important thing here at this point. Because this is an intensification of the word as it's used in the Old Testament. To give you an idea of of how this affects the the meaning, take the, the Hebrew word for broken. In the ordinary, simple, active, it would just read this way He has broken something. But in the PL, in the intensive form, the same word would be translated He is utterly broken or He is smashed. It's, it's an intensive breaking, you see, that takes place. And so here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse ch- chapter 2 and verse 3, the two verbs, blessed and sanctified, they are in this intensive form. They're not just simple utterances, they have constitutive, authoritative force. First of all, God blessed the day. In the Bible, the word blessed is used in two different ways. Sometimes it is used With the connotation of speaking favorably of somebody. It's an expression of goodwill concerning someone or to somebody. We read in Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Now, this is a human expression. We can't change anything or make God into anything he's not already. But we express our favor concerning him. Bless the Lord, that's what we say. But sometimes it's used in a different way. It's used in an authoritative, effectual way. In some cases, it's man that blesses another man. In Genesis chapter 27, we'll read of Esau going out to hunt game. And this was all for the purpose of coming back and making a savory meal for his father Isaac, who was going blind, or basically already blind, And meanwhile, as Esau is out there hunting, Jacob comes and he deceives his blind father. He pretends to be Esau. And at this time, therefore, Isaac pronounces the blessing upon Jacob instead of upon Esau. And when Esau comes back from the hunt, he announces that he is Esau. He tells his father, I'm the firstborn Esau. And when he hears this, Isaac trembles. He says this. Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came. And I have blessed him. And he indeed shall be blessed. You see, this was not just pronouncing some kind of general favor. This was an authoritative pronouncement. This was God's announcement of a special blessing that was going to be given to Jacob that was not going to be given to Esau, So even though it was a blessing pronounced by a man, Isaac knew that the authoritative blessing would be fulfilled by God. But in other cases in the Old Testament, it's God himself that pronounces the blessing. In Genesis 1 and verse 22 and also verse 28, God pronounces a blessing upon the creatures that he's just made. He pronounces an effectual blessing upon them. He ensures that they will fulfill their pur- his purpose for them. He blesses them. They will therefore multiply, and they will fill the earth with their kind. And in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God blesses in ascending order. The things that he blesses, first of all, are the beasts, and secondly, man. And then the highest blessing, he blesses the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2, we have another instance of this effectual kind of blessing. God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a covenant blessing. It's an effectual blessing that will take place. It powerfully makes that which is to be blessed, to be the one that's the, to be blessed, this, both the recipient and the channel of real good. And so about the seventh day, Matthew Henry says the Sabbath day is a blessed day, for God has blessed it, and that which he blesses is blessed indeed. In reality, a blessing will characterize that day. And just as his blessing on Abraham was an effectual blessing, God makes the Sabbath a means of conveying real good for his people. He makes it a day that brings heavenly blessings down upon those that observe it. And on that day, there is a real communication of the powers of salvation and of grace. And throughout history, therefore, the Lord's day is often the day in which multitudes are brought into God's kingdom. And in the new covenant, the day is changed to the first day of the week. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead and blessed his disciples. And he blessed them on more than one occasion on the first day of the week, in those 40 days that he was alive before he went back to heaven. And especially he manifested his presence to them He meets with them on one Lord's Day, then we read of another Lord's Day that he meets with them again. And then again on the day of Pentecost, which is the first day of the week. Thousands are saved. And now, for some 2,000 years, this has been the day, the day of resurrection, the Lord's Day. This has been the day that God has drawn near to his people in a remarkable way. He feeds them with precious truths, he quickens them with the outpouring of his grace. And he communes with them in a special manner. Now when God blessed the Sabbath, he constituted it as a day in which he would confer his choicest blessings upon man. He sets it apart as a day for devout contemplation of the creator's work. And on the divine perfections that are manifested in that work. It's a blessed day indeed. A day of blessing when we draw near to the Creator, when we enter into His rest, when we enjoy special communion with Him on that day. And to those who make the day a day of delight, especially delight in God, God promises to make that day a day of delight. And so we read in Isaiah 58 If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, And the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not doing your own ways or seeking your own pleasures or talking idly. And what's the promise? What's the blessing? He says, if you consider it to be a blessing, treat it like a blessing, what's the reward? You shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Job chapter 38 and verse 7 tells us that at creation, the morning stars, a reference to the angels, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. At the creation of the world, the angels echoed the very good of the creator, and they voiced great joy in what the creator had bestowed upon them and upon all of his creation. It's a day of blessing, and they saw it, and they expressed it by way of their joy. And not only is it a day of joy in which those who observe it rejoice, it's also a foretaste of the blessedness of of that which is yet to come. And this is why in Genesis chapter 2, unlike the preceding six days, there's no record of the end of the seventh day. It's a day of blessed rest that looks forward to eternity. For eternal rest, and on that, concerning that eternal Sabbath, we read in Revelation 14 and verse 13, "Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them." Saintly Robert Murray Machane, an eminent minister in the Church of Scotland in the early 19th century. He wonderfully captured the blessedness that we now enjoy as we anticipate the future blessedness of an eternal Sabbath. This is what he wrote. It is a type he's speaking of Sabbath it is a type of heaven when a believer lays aside his pen or loom brushes aside his worldly cares leaving them behind him with his weekday clothes and comes up to the house of God. It is like the morning of the resurrection day. The day when we shall come out of great tribulation into the presence of God and the Lamb. When the believer sits under the preached word and hears the voice of the shepherd leading and feeding his soul, it reminds him of the day when the Lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall feed him and lead him to the living fountains of water. And when he joins in the psalm of praise, it reminds him of the day when his hands shall strike the harp of God where congregation ne'er break up, And Sabbaths have no end. This is the reason why we love the Lord's Day, Machine goes on to say. This is the reason we call the Sabbath a delight. A well-spent Sabbath we feel to be a day of heaven upon earth. For this reason, we wish our Sabbaths to be wholly given to God. We love to spend the whole time in private and public exercises of God's worship, except so much as taken up in works of necessity and mercy. Listen to his attitude here. We love to rise early on that morning and to sit up late that we may have a long day with God. Well, the first constitutive act was that God blessed the day. But then God did something else with reference to the day. We read secondly in verse 3 that God sanctified the day. This means that he set it apart from common use. He set it apart unto sacred use. And he has separated and he has distinguished it from the rest of the days of the week. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 29 for a moment, please. He sets us apart this day. He consecrated it. And that's what consecrate or sanctifies means. It means to set it apart unto God. As we read through the Bible... Again and again we read of God sanctifying something, or in some translations it might be he consecrates something. When he does this, he removes something from its common, ordinary, everyday use and he sets it apart for sacred use, for the use of worship, for the use of of service. And so in Exodus chapter 29, verses 43 and 44, this is what we read about the tabernacle. We could have chosen many other texts in Exodus and so forth, but We've just chosen this one. God says, there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. It shall be, in other words, set apart by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his son to minister to me as priests. This is the whole idea that's behind the word hallow as we pray, hallowed be thy name. What are we praying in the Lord's Prayer there? We're praying that God's name would be set apart, that people would revere it, that they would honor it. They wouldn't treat it like an ordinary name. And so it is with this day. It's not to be treated like something that's ordinary. It's special. It's to be honored, you see. And the same word is used of God's temple. We could go into that. God sanctified it. And you can read of that in 1 Kings chapter 9, the first three verses. Well, the Hebrew word that's translated sanctified here in Genesis chapter two, 2 and verse 3, this Hebrew word, it comes from the Hebrew root, which means holy. And it's believed that this word, it comes from the verb that means to cut off or to separate. Therefore, the meaning of the word holiness is elevation, it's separation, it's exaltation from the, the usual level, and so the Sabbath, it's lifted up above the other days, and God claims that day is his day in a special way. Now, of course, every day is the Lord's day, we might say, we're to use every day for God's glory, whether we eat or drink, or whatever we do, we're to do it all for the glory of God. Every day we're to be doing that which pleases God. But there is one day in seven that's lifted higher than the rest. It's a special day that's to be used as a day in which in a consecrated way, concentrated way, we use it for the worship and the glory of God. It's to be set apart. And it, it, we rest, you see, from other things that we might engage ourselves in God's worship. And God's sanctifying this day it's equivalent to his commanding men to sanctify it. It completely misses the point of Genesis 2 and verse 3 if we just suppose that this is just a record about what God did. It's kind of interesting. This is what God did, but it really doesn't have anything to do with us. That misses the whole point, you see. Again, the Hebrew word in Genesis 2 3 for blessed is the Hebrew word for sanctified. And this is, again, let me emphasize again in the PL. It is an intensified uh, sanctification, and this stresses that God is authoritatively setting apart. And what God sets apart, we dare not treat common. Now suppose an Israelite in the wilderness; he's tired of sleeping in his tent for forty years. His tent's got some holes in it. So he can, it looks like it's going to rain that night, and he so he says to himself, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't think I'd like to sleep in this tent and get all wet tonight." And I'm tired of this this kind of tent. I think I'm going to go over to the tabernacle. I'll I'll sleep over there. It's got a lot of layers to it. I'll stay dry over there in the tabernacle. And furthermore, I think it's about time that I move up a notch or two in the world. My patched-up tent, it's an embarrassment. And after all that I've done, I think I deserve something better. And so the tabernacle with the rich colors and the gold embroidery, this suits me better. I think I'll just go sleep there. That will be my sleeping place tonight. Now, do you suppose that he thought that it was a perfectly fine thing to treat the tent that God had sanctified as if it were common, that this is okay with God? Do you think the Lord is going to let somebody get away with it? When God has set that apart, not just for common use, for anybody that wants to just go sleep there and walk in and out of there? All you've got to do is go to the passage about what happened when Uzzah put his hand upon the ark to, to stable it, when it was being carried on on, on a on a cart, instead of being carried by the priests, as God had ordered, in a moment, zap, he's dead. He treated something that was sacred as if it was common, as if it could be handled in just any old way. And so people say, well, that's the way it was under the law of Moses. And I answer Genesis chapter 2, this preceded the law of Moses. Moses. It preceded it by hundreds of years. It rests upon the foundation of creation, not upon something set up in the Mosaic law. And even though there were temporary features that were added to it under the Mosaic law, there was a new strictness to it and certain penalties that were temporarily applied to it. Even though there were these temporary features, we know that there is still an abiding day. For we read in Revelation 1 and verse 10 that there's still something that's called the Lord's day. It's a day in which the Lord, he calls it his day. The sovereign Lord calls it the Lord's day. It's a day set apart for the Lord. A day that is, is his in a way that surpasses the rest of the days of the week. And it is still true that what God sets apart as sacred, we dare not treat as common. Now you remember the Corinthians and their attitude about the Lord's Supper. There was a certain supper that was, in a special way, a Lord's Supper, different from the other suppers. These Corinthians, though, were guilty of treating the Lord's Supper as if it was just a common meal. And so Paul had to write to them, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You don't have it in mind to treat it like a sacred ordinance. For at eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? If you're going to just treat this like this, this way just eat it home, he says, if that's what you're going to do. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? But what was their sin about the Lord's Supper? It was that they were treating the Lord's Supper, the gathering of the Lord's people around the table as if it was a common thing. And even so, just as there is a sacred meal set apart from common use, and we call that the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's, it's He exercises special lordship over it. There's also a day that is called the Lord's Day. And the one is just as sacred as the other. And just as the Lord's Supper is to be set apart from regular meals, the Lord's Day is to be set apart unto God. Now, of course, it's true that there is a sense in which every day is to be devoted to the Lord. Likewise, there's a sense in which we should dig ditches to the glory of God. And we should have devotion in doing that just like we do when we sing a hymn. But it's simply the case that we have a tendency to be distracted by many other things when we're engaged in those activities. And so the Lord has set apart a day, one in seven, to be used in a consecrated way for his worship and for his service. And what God has declared holy, what God has sanctified, we dare not treat as if it's common. We must treat it as holy. Holy. It sounds very pious to say every day is holy, and therefore one day is not more holy than another. But to treat every day the same, when God has said that it is not the same, one of them is special, we are behaving as if we think we're wiser than God. The great theologian John Murray writes The recurring seventh day is different, and it is so by divine appointment. To obliterate this difference may appear pious. But it is piosity, not piety. It is not piety to be wiser than God. It is impiety of the darkest hue. To disregard the sanctity is to disregard also our nature. We tend to be distracted. And we will never enjoy undistracted, undisturbed worship until we're, we're in heaven. We, we get distracted even in this room. And it helps us to be focused upon God when we hear the word and when we sing together. But there's still distractions that come into our mind. But for God's, but for our benefit, God has given us a day in which we are less distracted than on other days. God knows our nature. He knows what we need. He has given us, therefore, the privilege of setting apart this day, even as he did authoritatively back in Genesis chapter 2. Well, having noticed the identity of these two activities, notice with me, and here I'll be more brief, their rationale. In verse 3, at the end of the verse, we read, Because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. The blessedness and the sanctity that was imparted to that day, this is grounded in the divine example. And because of God's example in resting on that day for all time, there is a sanctity and there is a blessedness that's attached to it. God's authoritative sanction of this day, it's clothed, you see, with constraining moral power. It's the moral power of his example. That's the pressure that was put on Adam and Eve's conscience. And because of the slowness of our hearts to engage in spiritual exercises on this day, infinite wisdom has seen fit to add the force of God's endearing example to move us also to treat this day in a way that shows that we regard it as a blessed day, as a sanctified day. As Dr. Martin puts it, the great motive for keeping the Sabbath, therefore, is to be like God. The great concern of Sabbath-keeping is godliness, or he puts it this way, godlikeness. And this motive It points forward to the day when divine example would change the day from the seventh day to the first day. Just as God gave us an example in the first creation, he gave us an example of the new creation where Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And the day of his resurrection, this ushers in a new creation. And this was not only for Jesus, but for all of us who are created anew in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so before he ascended to heaven again and again, he celebrated this day with his disciples, a day that ca- soon came to be known, the Lord's Day. And likewise, we gladly celebrate that day now, just as he did so some 2,000 years ago. Well, I want to conclude with some words of application. The first two applications that are listed in the bulletin are the ones that we covered in our last sermon. We learned the unchanging obligation of the day, And we learn here the unchanging necessity of the day. We are creatures that need physical rest. We need spiritual rest. But I want to concentrate on this third application that relates more directly to what we've just covered. Here we also learn of the unchanging focus of the Lord's day. And that focus is worship. Before sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve, they lived in a veritable temple to the glory of God. What they saw around them in this perfect creation, this was more beautiful than the crystal cathedral that Schuler built. More, be, more beautiful than any, any cathedral built in Europe. It was a cathedral that God had made. Everything around them shouted and sang the glory of God. But even then, God knew that as they would be caring for the garden, they would t- that, that care of the garden would preoccupy their minds. And even unfallen finite bodies would need rest. But the rest that God prescribed was not just sleeping. It was a rest that was to be used for the purpose of drawing near to God. And even in their innocence, there would be a need, therefore, to separate time for worship. And so right from the beginning, God ordained two features that would characterize their worship. These two features are the features of sanctity and blessedness. Sanctity should attend our worship, just as it, it characterized the, the first Lord's Day and every Lord's Day since. True worship, it requires shutting out the distractions of the week. It requires setting time apart for God. It requires it, it just laying everything else out of our minds and out of our hands and everything that we might give ourselves to worship in an undistracted way. And one of the great characteristics of the religion of our day is that it's man-centered. The gospel that's preached in so many places is man-centered. Thousands come to, to hear speeches that are basically just Christianized uh, uh, motivational speeches that, that give you tips for successful living. It's very man-centered, you see. At church services, they tend to have the same feature. They're consumer-oriented. Church leaders make it aim, make it their aim to find out what people want in that community. They do, do surveys. Well, what would you like about a church? And then they package their church life accordingly. And the result is a religion of convenience, a religion that pampers the flesh of fallen man. And one thing that the flesh definitely is not disposed to do is to give God one day of worship. And Therefore, there is a deep-seated aversion to the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath today. It used to be the general view among Christians all across the country. And now that's been rejected. And this is a man-centered type of a a religion that rejects this. And not only is the religion of our day man-centered, even the world's view of sin is man-centered. Edward Donnelly, he writes with great insight concerning this when he says, what is sin nowadays? What is considered wrong and shameful? What sort of behavior should we avoid? The best general answer it might be anything that hurts others. We should try to be our best not to harm or cause distress to another person. That is seen to be evil. We should not lie, exploit, or use violence. Children should not be abused. You shall not steal, though rapidly to decrease to and, and also the rapidly decreasing, to ex, decreasing extent, the seventh commandment, you should not commit adultery. These commandments seem sensible rules for society. In other words, all the ways in which we think, yeah, we don't want to hurt other people. So those, those commands, they make sense. And what, though, he goes on to say, you try talking to them about the second commandment, the third commandment, the fourth commandment, not to worship God in any other way than that which is appointed in his word, the first commandment, or the second commandment, not to take God's name in vain, the third commandment, To keep the Sabbath holy, the fourth commandment. These, talking about society in general, they regard as ridiculous. And why the difference? Why do people accept some of the commandments as valid while rejecting the other commandments? Because they have a man-centered view of sin. You see, hurting people, that's wrong. But it doesn't really matter what we do with respect to God. That's okay. Anybody can do whatever they want. Why do people accept these commandments? Others, Some commandments is valid and reject others. He says, because they have a man-centered view of sin. Hurting people is wrong, and they know they shouldn't do it, but they have no sense of sin as being against God's commandments, which seem to have no direct bearing on human welfare, and these things make no impact, therefore, on their consciences. God simply doesn't matter. And it's the... God-centeredness of the fourth commandment, the God-centeredness of this day as it was richly given even before the commandments. It's the God-centeredness of this this commandment that goes against the grain of our worldly generation, our man-centered generation. And likewise, the whole idea that God is to be given one day in seven, it goes against the grain of our hearts as well by nature. At the bottom you see, sin is everything that centers on self rather than God. We, We make... Ourselves to be the orbit of everything, and God is to be the orbit of everything you see. And these first commandments and the the, the ten commandments—they focus upon the fact that God is to be central. And the more we embrace God's plan, though of shutting out all these worldly interests that distract our worship, the more our minds and hearts are consecrated to Him. Well, the first feature that should characterize worship is sanctity. The second feature is blessedness. The sense of sanctity and awe ought to be a prominent feature of our worship. But we mustn't suppose that the more miserable we are, the more God is pleased. God blessed the Sabbath day. He didn't intend it to be a miserable day. He intended it to be a happy day, the happiest day of the week. Our Lord's Day worship, therefore, it should include the element of joy. Didn't we read at the outset of the service, the psalmist's invitation, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us shout joyfully to him and sing psalms. The Lord's invitation, you see, is to enter into a Sabbath rest. It's an invitation to share in joy and delight. Likewise with worship the Sabbath, God invites us to come and share in his blessedness and joy. It's a day in which God comes to his worshiping people with his hands laden with spiritual gifts. And one of the great purposes of the day is the enjoyment of these spiritual blessings that he offers to us on this day. And when we read that God blessed this day, we ought to understand that this means that God made it to be a day that is spiritually fruitful, that is blessed. Just like the animals were to be fruitful, they were blessed, they were to multiply. The slander is often leveled against the Puritans, that with their Sabbath day strictness they became a, it became a day of misery. But the Puritans, they had a different attitude, by and large. They spoke of this day as the market day of the soul what are they speaking about when they called it the market day of the soul? Well, I think you ladies especially should enjoy this. Because most ladies, one of the most pleasurable things to do in the week is when you go shopping. You you go with your money, and what is the thing that's pleasant about it? It's because of the things you're going to bring home at the end of that day, at the end of that little trip. You go to the market, you see, to get special things that maybe you need or maybe you don't need so much, but you just see it and it's really something nice you would like, and so you buy it. And just as we go shopping, you see, with eager anticipation because we hope to purchase some things, we should come to this day with the same excitement. We're going to get some spiritual blessings. This is our market day, our spiritual market day. And we get blessings that are far greater than anything that money could buy. In his sermon on Psalm 138 and verse 5, verse that says, They shall sing in the ways of the Lord great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, I see some on a Sunday who look dreadfully solemn, and they walk to their places of worship as if they were going to the gallows and never expected to come back alive. But that is not the spirit in which I would have you go up to the house of God. I believe that Sunday should be spent at recreation. You're dreadfully shocked, and you may well be. But what do I mean by Recreation it means creating anew it means recreate that's what recreation is oh that everybody who talks about spending sunny a sunday in recreation will come to be recreated regenerated renewed refreshed revived and made to rejoice in god well these two things the blessing of the day the sanctity of the day it teaches us about god's intention for worship but then finally, here also we learn of the unchanging character of the Lord's day. Under the Mosaic Covenant, there were many specific applications of the principle of one day and seven. These were temporary. You're not to pick up sticks. You're not to kindle a fire. All kinds of extra rules were given. And those things were removed, with the coming of Christ. They were temporary additions. And as such, the Jewish Sabbath, it doesn't abide. But the essence of the day, as it was given in creation, this carries over. And these two features carry over the t- feature of sanctity and blessedness. And therefore, there are two ways in which we violate the Lord's day it's by removing the sanctity of the day, or by removing the blessedness of the day. We sin when we remove its sanctity. If God set the day apart, If God put boundaries around the day, it is sin to allow the mundane to rob the day of its holy glory. Again, to quote from another sermon of Spurgeon, one man traveling on the road saw a poor man in distress. And having but seven shillings, the generous person gave the poor man six. But when the wretched scrambled to his feet, he followed his benefactor to knock him down and steal the seventh shilling from him. How many do this? The Sabbath is their day for sport, for amusement, for anything but the service of God. They rob God of his day, even though it's just one in seven. And here's the defiance of our generation. The the Lord's day is the primary business day. It's the primary day for football. It's the, the primary day for a host of other activities. And Sundays become a fun day, you see, instead of the blessed day that God has appointed it for God set boundaries around it, and the world transgresses those boundaries and says, we are going to do our own thing. We are not going to regard this in any way as a different day. So we sin when we remove its sanctity. But also, we do damage to our souls, and we actually sin by removing its blessedness. And how is its blessedness removed? Well, one of the ways is to have a pharisaical judgmental strictness about the day just like the Pharisees did at Jesus' day. They were always running around with a little spyglass trying to f- see something that Jesus did and pounce upon it and say, ah, oh, you, you Sabbath-breaker. They had this kind of an attitude. They like to judge other people. And in a similar way, there are people that always seem to be on the lookout for, for Sabbath violations. Should we walk in the park on that day? Well, they might have a rule about that. And we read, by the way, of Isaac going into the field, and it seems like he went to the field to meditate. It was a pious thing that he did. Do we turn on the stove? And so they have their whole list of things that they think would be a violation of it. And they eagerly report those things that they seem to think that, 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 are, that are dishonoring to the Lord. And so this is, this, the blessedness is removed. This is the thing that Jesus had to create. He spent more time correcting the Sabbath than any other commandment. And why would he spend so much time on it if it's just totally not to be used anymore at all? The Sabbath to be a delightful day. It's to be a day of blessedness. And so I ask you, is the day a day of blessedness to you? It should be the most cheerful day of all. And if it's become a wearisome thing, there's something wrong with your heart. It's not blessedness to you anymore. Pray that God will touch your heart so that you will enjoy it once again. So, this is a way we ruin it, you see. We ruin it, we take away the blessedness by this Pharisaical judgmental strictness. But there's one other way in which people ruin the blessedness of this day. And it's even at a more basic level. It's when people have a controversy with God. Let's say I'm your enemy, and I've done some things that you don't like, and you've done some things to me, and we just, you know, we're enemies but let's say I come to you someday and I'm your, your worst enemy in your whole life. And I promise on that day to take care of your needs. And I promise to spend a whole day with you. Remember, I'm your enemy. And this is my promise. I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend a whole day with you. And What would you say? Yuck. Take a hike. Get out of here. I don't want to spend time with you. You're my enemy. This is the attitude that Amos reproved. When will the Sabbath be gone, people were saying. But to the believer, it's a day of rest. It's a day of gladness. And why is it so blessed? It's because they have special time with God on that day. He communes with them in a a less undistracted way than on other days. But when we have this attitude, you see, that we want to reject it. And the reason why we want to reject it is because it's a day for God, a day in which we commune with God. And we don't want to be with God. And if you've got that kind of a heart where you don't want to be with God, you want to just run away from God, you can't wait for the sermon to be over, you can't wait for the day to be over, because you don't want God. You'd like to do your own thing. And you've got a controversy with God, you see. And as long as you have that controversy and you don't repent of your sin and you don't come to the Lord Jesus in faith and in repentance, you will never have a blessed day on the Lord's day. You will not know what it's like to draw near to God in a sanctified and in a blessed way, as we read of it here. And it's the original and abiding intention right from the very beginning of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you that this day has been given to us for our benefit, for our delight. And we confess that many times we have fallen short of what you would have for us in terms of our drawing aside from worldly things and other things that we might spend time with you and spend time with your people. We pray, Lord, that we would call the day a delight. We pray that you would help us to withdraw our foot, as the prophet puts it, from doing other things that we ordinarily would do. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us, O Lord, to commune with you for the rest of this day that you've given to us. That you would enable us to so order our time in this day that it's a day in which... We, we truly enjoy the, the market day of our souls, a, a day in which we reap great spiritual blessings, a day in which you speak to us, a day in which our hearts are filled with song and our hearts are filled with joy because you are our joy, because our Savior is our joy. Help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in you. And Those that can't stand you, Lord, and don't want to have a day with you, anyone that is in this room that that could, with that kind of an attitude, change the heart of that person. Bring that person to repentance. Bring them to see that they've got a controversy with you. Help them to repent of their sins and come to you by faith in the Lord Jesus and in his shed blood. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.